Matthew 28, 1 through 20. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came, came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone, and happy Easter. Yeah, we can say happy Easter back. Let's do it. So Easter is a big day. It's a big day for us as a church. Like I shared, we're, we're celebrating, we're having an Easter fest, we're making it a huge deal. On the church calendar, it is like the highlight, the one big day of the entire year. And so you may have plans today after the service. You may have family plans and that sort of thing. But Easter, for me, as I was thinking about this Sunday coming up and kind of observing what was going on, it seems to me that Easter is kind of losing steam as a holiday. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I, I didn't see many Easter ads coming in the mail, like Easter sale coming up. And I didn't see all this buzz and hoopla out there like we see with Christmas and some of these other holidays. I'm like, is Easter losing steam? Or maybe it's been that way a little bit always. I don't know about for you whether growing up you have Easter memories. If I were to ask, what are your favorite Easter memories? Some of you would say, I have some. It's all about the egg hunts and the jelly beans and and other traditions that you might have, but some of you might say, well, maybe when I was a kid, that's how it, it kind of is for me, maybe as I was a kid, we used to paint eggs and, and go on an Easter egg hunt, but as I got older, we kind of, yeah, we just kind of had a, had a meal together or something of that nature. So it's Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's and even Halloween, we have all kinds of memories 
Everybody has memories of those holidays, but what about Easter? Easter in the Bible, in the story of the Scriptures, is the one big day. It is the one big highlight, the day to remember. I have, even though Easter hasn't been a total big um, holiday for me and growing up and in my family, there's one Easter day that I'll, I'll never forget, that I'll always remember, and that was in 2010. We were living in San Diego, and when we came home from church, we were having our, our lunch there. It was just our family at home, my wife and my kids, and all of a sudden, everything starts shaking. The house is shaking, the windows are rattling, and we're like, what's going on? We're like, is it? Is it happening? And things just keep shaking a little bit. And then a few moments later, aftershock comes, and then another aftershock. So that was a 7.2 earthquake. That was the largest earthquake in San Diego, I think, in 18 years, and it happened on Easter Sunday. And after it happened, I was thinking, oh, yeah, there's this place in the Bible that talks about an earthquake happening on Easter. We read about it. Lori read that for us in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 2, if you look there again. And actually, this is unique to Matthew. He's, he's the only one who tells us that, in fact, there was an earthquake. And what we have in the Gospels, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just like us, when they're telling a story, they use different styles to tell that story. We all have a different storytelling style. Some of us like to give all the color and the details and flesh it out and say, this happened and that happened. Some of us, we just stick to the facts. How was your day? Fine. What did you do? I went to work. Okay. That's about it. So everybody has a different style, and that's true with the Gospels. The Gospel of John, if you've read it, he tells a very intimate story. He was one of Jesus' closest friends, and you can tell. The Gospel of Mark He's like a fast talker. One of these people is like, and I want to tell you about this. And then this happened, and you got to know about this. And he tells it very excited. He wants to get you to encounter that story. And then if you read the Gospel of Luke, he's very methodical. He's, he's like a professor, like a scholar. He's paying attention to the details and filling it all in. And then there's Matthew. The way that I would characterize the way Matthew tells his story and we'll see it here, especially at the very end in his conclusion to the story, is that he tells a story with awe and wonder. He's saying, this is what we've been waiting for. It's here. It's happening with Jesus. And he's just awed by the story he's telling. In this passage we just read, what he uses one of his favorite words four times. And it's the word, behold. So the word behold, that word sounds very biblical, very Shakespearean, like you're supposed to say the word behold in only a British accent, behold, this happened. But the word in Matthew and the way he uses it, the reason it's one of his favorite words is because it's, it's kind of like one scholar says you could translate it like, guess what? Or we might say, OMG, or something like that, like, can you believe this happened? And he does it 62 times in his gospel, and he does it four times here. The first thing he tells us about Easter that he doesn't want us to miss, in verse 2, he says, behold, there was a great earthquake. 
Matthew wrote to people who knew the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew the story, and often when there was a great earthquake, that meant the direct action and power of God was about to come forth. So don't miss this. God is going to do something huge, something big. So I grew up in Florida. So our natural disaster there was not an earthquake, but was a hurricane. And growing up, when you were in school in Florida, if you had to do these hurricane drills. So if a hurricane's coming through, you get under your desk and you huddle in there so that all the shards, I guess, from the windows don't pierce your skin and all these horrible thoughts that came to our mind. But we had to do earthquake drills all the time. And so moving to California, I thought, well, I'm moving away from hurricanes, good. Just earthquakes. I mean, I would choose an earthquake any day over a hurricane. Hurricanes come forth, they just rip everything to shreds. Earthquake, and like just a little shaky, shaky, and then we're all done. That's, how bad can that be? But then in 1999, when I first moved here to Southern California, then I experienced my first earthquake. And it happened in the middle of the night. I was dreaming that there was an earthquake. So I'm dreaming like, oh, I'm dreaming there's an earthquake. And I wake up, and I'm going, oh, there is an earthquake. And I start to, like, panic and freak out, like, what do you do? I haven't ever had an earthquake drill, so I don't know what to do. And so I said, aren't you supposed to get into, like, the frame of a door? I don't even know if that's true, but I got into the frame of my door. I had two other roommates, and we're just all standing there in our pajamas looking at each other. Like, there's an earthquake, right? Yeah. And it's just rolling and rumbling. It was like, yes, it was a roller and a shaker, and it was just one of these huge earthquakes. And I thought, this is very unsettling. I mean, the difference between a hurricane and an earthquake is in a hurricane, you know it's coming. You can prepare. You can flee. If you have to flee, you can do something about it. But an earthquake comes out of nowhere, and it shakes the foundation that you're standing on. So Matthew here is telling us, he's bringing out this great earthquake, earthquake to say Easter is the great earthquake in the story of Jesus. Without Easter, if he were to end his gospel one chapter earlier, maybe the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus would be maybe a 3.0 on the Richter scale, just a little tremor in history. But because Easter is true, He says Easter is like a 10.0 magnitude earthquake. Its impact is great. And Easter is where the impact of Christianity is found. Easter is where it is felt in a way that grabs our attention and shakes us. The very foundation of our lives and changes everything. This morning, as we're looking at this passage, I want to look at how this story of Easter can have that kind of earthquake impact in our lives now. And I just want to look at two points. Easter can have that impact because Easter, the story of Easter is true. And secondly, the story of Easter is transformative. First, let's look at how the story of Easter is true. If it is historically true, literally true, that Jesus rose from the dead, then that impacts everything about our lives. This is what Matthew and the rest of the New Testament writers were saying. Jesus who was crucified, Jesus who died, Jesus who was buried and in the tomb, he came back to life. It really happened. Not in a figurative or symbolic sense, not Jesus saying, my spirit lives on with you, my teaching lives on with you, just follow it. That wouldn't be taking the New Testament at face value. They were saying this is a fact of history. If you look at this passage, the most repeated and important word in these 20 verses is the word see. 
if you want to look at it with me, in verse 1, we see that the, the women went to see the tomb. And then the angels say, see the place where he lay. They say, you will see him. Verse 10, Jesus says, my disciples, they will see me. And in verse 17, it tells us they saw him. So Matthew and the rest of the New Testament is unified about this. If Jesus' resurrected body could not be seen and touched, if it was not real, then the movement is dead, the faith is empty and worthless. The gospel, which is translated good news, would no longer be good news, would be emptied of its content. Easter cannot be good news, Matthew is saying, if it is fake news. Now, fake news is a new concept that we're probably all somewhat familiar with after the past elections of 2016. I never heard of this phrase, fake news, before. Now it's everywhere. That's fake news. That's fake news. Fake news is when there's a false or contrived story that's kind of leaked or put out there, and people start quoting it, people start believing it, and all of a sudden, this false story starts impacting people's lives and decisions and their voting patterns and that kind of thing. So, for good reason now, we have a lot of... Um, we have a lot of reason to be skeptical, to be suspicious of news that sounds too good to be true or too fantastical or crazy for us to believe in. And the resurrection is a story like that. It's not easy for us to believe it. So how do we know that the resurrection isn't fake news, this contrived story that was invented by Jesus' followers to keep their movement alive? Well, as I was thinking about this, I was looking into this whole idea of fake news, and I found a website. It's called factchecker.org. So there are many websites out there for you to go, is this story true? Let me check the facts. This is what the president is saying. This is what this political party is saying. Let me go online and check. So they provide that information for you to check. But they also provide this checklist. So you can do this yourself. Here is your checklist. Here are things for you to look at to tell if the story is true or false. And as I looked at those, I thought, we can apply these same checklist principles to the story of Easter. And I want to do that with you this morning. Seven things to consider. We'll go through each one of them. They say, always read behind the, the headline. Always read beyond the headline. Some of us, I am guilty of this, we just get all our news in headlines. And often I'll tell Amelia, oh, this happened. My wife, I'll say, this happened. Or this is going on. She'll, say, she'll ask me a follow-up question like, well, what, is, what about this and what about that? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't click it. That's just always, I didn't click the link. It's just a headline. Neither Matthew nor any of the other New Testament writers are asking us to believe in the resurrection simply as a headline. They're not asking us to believe in the resurrection on blind faith and just saying, take my word for it. Instead, they all encourage us to ask hard questions. They provide us with details, with the specific, with names, with places to corroborate what they're saying. Matthew is even honest enough, if you look at verse 17, to say that some of Jesus' disciples, when they saw him, they actually doubted. If you are spreading fake news, why would you say that even Jesus' closest followers doubted? Besides being a mark of authenticity, this little comment that some doubted is very comforting for those of us who might struggle with doubt. You're not alone in that. 
It takes time to process and to feel the impact of this reality, this fact of the resurrection. That word doubt in the Greek, not so much speaking to intellectual doubt, but a doubt of hesitation. I'm seeing this. I'm hearing this. I'm encountering this. But what does it mean? One scholar says this person is divided in his conviction. The facts are present, but the action on them is lacking. If it's true, what does this mean? So Matthew is encouraging us to go beyond the headline, and he's giving us the marks of an authentic, a very honest telling of a story that actually happened. That's the first checker. Second checklist, consider the source. This is a very important part of the truth of Easter. In the ancient world, the testimony of an eyewitness, somebody who actually saw something happen, was by far the most valuable and reliable source of information. That's what they considered the most important source of truth. There were no newspapers and TV, so they relied on eyewitnesses. And so if you read the story here, Matthew tells us that the first two eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. And this is extremely significant. In the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a court of Jewish law. A few thoughts from writers of the day. The Jewish author Josephus said, even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable, acceptable because, he says, quotes, he said this, not me, because of the levity and boldness of their sex. And then another author, Celsus, who was a critic of Christianity, he said this, he mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as the alleged resurrection witness, referring to her as an hysterical female, deluded by sorcery. That's very offensive for us to hear those things. As offensive as those views are to us today, they show us that if Matthew was inventing this story, if he was putting out their fake news, he would never have made these women the source, the first eyewitness to the resurrection. It would hurt his case, not help it in any way. Third checklist. Check the author and date. Matthew was the one who wrote this. He was one of the 12 closest followers of Jesus. His gospel was written somewhere between 40 A.D. and 80 A.D., but in this time period, he was writing to people who were there. He was writing to the religious authorities who were trying to suppress this. There were other followers of Jesus who could have stepped up and said, nope, I was there, this isn't true, this isn't what happened, Jesus did die, there was the body, etc. None of that happened. And like the other disciples, Matthew gave his life to this resurrection story being true. We don't know all the details, but likely he followed this call of the Great Commission into Ethiopia. So he considered it true. That's the author and the date. Fourth, the next thing on the checklist is consult the experts. Well, that's a little difficult. We don't have any experts on people rising from the dead, but there were the religious experts then. And it, Matthew tells us, that they were the ones who tried to squash the Jesus movement. They, they, they saw it as a threat, so they came up with their own fake news. That Jesus, his disciples, they stole the body. Fifth, is this a joke? Sometimes a fake news story is out there. It's just a joke that somebody's trying to put out there. Even today, some people say this was actually a very elaborate communal hoax that the disciples pulled off. It's kind of a joke. But belief in the resurrection led to the persecution, the suffering, and the death of those who 
proclaimed it and those who lived it. So it's not just unlikely but impossible that they would invent a joke that they would die for or a hoax. Number six, what's the support? We need to always ask, what's the support? And here's where the angels come in in verse 2 and verse 6. They say, come see the place where he lay. The empty tomb, I was talking to my kids about this last night. I said, why did the angels roll back the stone? Was it so they could let Jesus out? And they were like, yeah. I was like, no. (laughs) Trick question. Jesus was already gone. The reason it says the angels rolled back the stone was to show everyone that the tomb was empty. The easiest way for the Jewish religious leaders or anyone, the Roman authorities, to disprove this claim, to end the Jesus movement forever, would be to produce the dead body of Jesus. No one claimed to have ever had it. No one ever claimed that they could do that. So the support, one of the strongest supports that this is true is that the tomb was in fact empty and required an explanation. Nobody disputed that fact. Seventh and last point on the checklist, check your biases. One of the biggest misconceptions we have about this whole truth that, that, that Easter can in fact be true is that we think it was easier for people in the first century to believe something like this than it is for us modern and advanced people today. But that just isn't true. For those in a Jewish worldview, they held firmly to the belief in a resurrection, but this was going to be a very public event. You couldn't miss it. It was going to be for all the world. There would be the return of God to his earth to set up his kingdom and a resurrection. No one even conceived of the idea of this happening in the middle of history. And then if you were from a Greek worldview and a Greek perspective, there was very little belief in this time of any life beyond death. Death was just the end. And if there was... The resurrection of the body would be something that they didn't consider even desirable. They viewed the soul as much more advanced in existence. A spiritual soul existence is preferable to a bodily existence. So a resurrection of the body would be a step backward. And they would have never believed this, not only possible, but being desirable. So despite these strong biases against believing in a resurrection, many people then... And many people throughout history have believed that Easter is, in fact, true. What can explain this? Well, despite many other attempts to explain the rise of Christianity, the devotion of the disciples of Jesus to the point of martyrdom, the spread of Christianity, and the persistence of belief in the resurrection, despite many attempts to explain that, maybe the best explanation is that Easter is true. I want to share a final quote on this from John Lennox. He said, The evidence of the empty tomb, the character of the witnesses, the explosion of Christianity out of Judaism, and the testimony of millions today are inexplicable without the resurrection. As Holmes said to Watson, How often have I said to you that when you have eliminated the impossible, Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And so it is with the story of Easter. This earthquake impact of Easter is found not only 
when we come to believe that the story of Easter is true, but when we come to experience the transformative power of Easter. I want to look at two ways that the story is transformative. These two ways I'm going to call Easter ethics and Easter endings. First, Easter ethics. If you look at verse 20 in the passage, Jesus' final words, some of his final words are, I want you to go, I want you to teach all nations everywhere to observe everything I have commanded you to do. Many people look at this and go, look at this. The most important thing about Jesus and Christianity is the teachings of Jesus. Let's not get bogged down in whether the resurrection is true and get into all those debates. The important thing is that we follow the teachings of Jesus. He might be the best teacher that ever lived. The problem with this view is that following Jesus' teaching requires the fact of the resurrection. It requires that the resurrection is true. The truth of the resurrection is the basis and the power for living out his ethics, living out his teachings. A few examples of this, they're up there on the screen. Easter is a call to compassion. In our day and in Jesus' day, we contend towards one of two approaches when it comes to practical ethics, how we live and how we consider our responsibility in the world. One I would call the secular approach. The secular approach says the body is all there is. This material universe is all there is. There's nothing outside of it. If that's true, then you have reason to care for your body and to take care of yourself, but not a strong reason to care for the bodies of anybody else. There is a survival of the fittest. You don't care for others' bodies, especially at the expense or loss of your own. On the other hand, there's a view that sometimes we tend towards that the spirit is all that matters. We need to focus on contemplation, not wasting our times on physical needs. We need to focus on souls, ideas, and religious devotion. But because Jesus rose bodily from the dead, he is showing us we cannot separate body and soul. God created and values both. And the resurrection, then, is this call to compassion. The central part of the Christian ethic is caring for the physical and material needs of others. And so this caused early Christians to move into places in order to serve the most vulnerable, those who were oppressed. And so strong was this connection between body and soul that later on in the, in the epistle of James, he says, if someone lacks clothes and food and you do nothing, your faith is dead. And the Apostle John says, if you see a brother in need and you withhold compassion, God's love cannot live in you. And so what we see is that wherever Easter is believed to be true, there should be an earthquake of compassion, of needing the material and the physical needs of those in our community. The truth of Easter also is the power for generosity. If Jesus has risen, and I will too, and the abundance of resurrection life and new creation life is just on the other side of the horizon, then this life is not about acquiring, it's not about accumulating, it's not FOMO, fear of missing out, for ourselves. We are set free from that. It's not FOMO, it's FOHO, fear of holding on that we would hold on, on to, to too much in this life, not be willing to let go and to be generous. If Easter is true, 
then we should experience that earthquake of generosity in our lives. Freedom from the powerful hold of money and things over our lives because what is to come is greater than anything we could gain here. Lastly, a love for enemies. Easter is proof, as one Christian author said, if you are a Christian, the very worst it can get for you in the long term is resurrection and everlasting life. This is the basis for the ethic of forgiving and loving our enemies, for the ethic of nonviolence and non-retaliation. Last week, you may have seen this on Palm Sunday, in two separate churches in Egypt, bombs were set off that killed over 40 people. And the next day, uh, one of the priests, Father Bullis George, he preached a sermon called A Message to Those Who Kill Us. One of my friends shared this with me, one of the most powerful things I've ever read. He had a, he had a two-point sermon the day after this happened. Point one, thank you. Point two, we love you. I just want to read a few quotes. He's preaching to those who attacked them. He said, you gave us to die the same death as Christ, and this is the biggest honor we could have. We thank you because you shortened for us the journey. When someone is headed home to a particular city, he keeps looking at the time. When will I get home? Are we there yet? Can you imagine if in an instant he finds himself on a rocket ship straight to his destination? You shorten the journey. Thank you for shortening the journey. Then he said, I love you. He said, we must all pray for them today, that God opens their eyes and opens their hearts to his love. Because if they tasted the love of God, they could never do this. Wherever Easter is believed to be true, there should be this earthquake of love. For those who disagree with us, even those who stand opposed to us, an earthquake of love. That's Easter ethics. I also want to touch on Easter Endings, Because Easter is transformative of all of life's endings. And by life's endings, I mean a failure. I mean a loss. The end of a dream, a painful and hard change in our lives. When something seems like it's coming to an end. Matthew 28 picks up the story at the burial site of Jesus. So which for his followers seemed like the end. The kind of end they would never recover from. The kind of end they hoped would never happen. They had given three years of their life to following Jesus, and now he was gone. They had hoped their life would be different. They had hoped God would come through for them. On top of that, they had left Jesus. When he was arrested, when he was tried, they abandoned him and left him. And so they were filled with this shame and this guilt of how everything had ended. What now, they were asking. Well, I want to point out two things that Jesus says. When he's talking to the the Marys, he tells them, here's what I want you to do. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Two things about this statement that should give us great hope when it comes to our endings. First, Galilee. Galilee is the place where it all began. 
Galilee is the place where, Pe where Peter and Andrew and James and John were called. That was where the mission began. And Jesus says, we are going to have a new beginning right where it all started. This isn't the end. What seems like an ending is, in fact, a new beginning. And then, if you notice, he calls them brothers. Go tell my brothers to meet me there. Those who abandoned him, those who denied them, he didn't come and say, how could you do that? We need to deal with what you did first. Instead, he forgave them and he affirmed them. Easter gives us the pattern for how God impacts our lives. Life comes out of death. Out of brokenness can come beauty. When there is despair and darkness, there can be hope. There are always second chances and new beginnings. I want to share a quote from Peter Cesaro to this end. He says, the central truth that Jesus is risen from the dead is what enables us to affirm that endings are always a gateway to new beginnings, even when we can't discern that anything redemptive could emerge from our lives. A few weeks ago, I went to a live concert for the first time in a long time, many, many years. And I had forgotten the whole dynamic of what happens when you're hearing live music and the performance is going on. Well, it ends, and the performers and the artists are saying, this is over, thank you, that was great, and they exit the stage. But everyone there is like, this isn't the end, encore, encore, more, more, more. And they come out, and often that's when they're playing some of their best songs and their greatest hits. Easter means there's always an encore. No matter how hard it is, no matter how long we have to wait, endings always bring about new beginnings. This morning, as we consider the earthquake of Easter, its impact on our lives, the truth of Easter its transformative power in our lives. May you be encouraged that there is always an encore. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion, and communion is a visual sermon. Communion tells us in physical form the things we have just heard in verbal form. It points us backward it tells us the cross and the resurrection are real, just as real as this bread that you get to touch and taste and feel. So real is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It points us to the now, to the here and now, to tell us the risen Jesus is alive. He is present. He is with us always, even to the end of the age, and he draws near to us. He is with us now as we come to this table together. And this meal also points us ahead to the future when Jesus comes again. That as we struggle through endings, as we struggle through doubts, we know this meal shows us that a new creation is coming. He will come again. He will usher in our resurrection and the renewal of all things. So in a moment, as you come, I encourage you, come with great hope, come with great faith, and I pray we would experience that shaking, that impact of Easter. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would bring that impact to our lives. As we look at the end of the story, we see the disciples and their reaction was to worship Jesus. And I pray you would take us to that place. If we're struggling with endings right now in our lives with loss and failure and grief, I pray you would meet us, remind us of the hope that we can have. If we're struggling with doubt and confusion, I would pray you would break through with fresh clarity. And I pray this would be a moment of renewed worship for all of us as we draw near to the hope and to the truth of the story of the resurrection, that you would bring that resurrection power and life to bear right to us where we're at this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.